Thank you, Dad. I'll be sure to rejoice uh, with my father. Uh, he's our newest county judge as of this weekend, uh, so that's kind of fun. <laughs> it was a neat, a neat thing for our family to be able to celebrate uh, together uh, this weekend, so uh, thanks for sharing with us and leading us. We are uh, in the middle of a series on the book of Matthew, and today uh, we're also celebrating our second anniversary as a church, two years. Holy smokes, it's hard to imagine. Uh, but what, what fun to be together. Uh, so we, in order to get through Matthew in a timely fashion, or not really a timely fashion, but at least an orderly fashion, we have tried to split our time in Matthew up in a, in a number of kind of mini-series, and so for now, we are looking at the parables of Jesus, because the Gospel of Matthew is about the Kingdom of Heaven, and if you've not caught on, that's kind of what we've been singing about, and thinking about, and reading about. And So in all of his miracles, and throughout all of his ministry, Jesus has been putting the kingdom of heaven on display, but when he wants to teach people about the nature of the kingdom, about how you enter it and how it works and uh, what its destiny is and what kinds of things you can expect, all of these things, he tells stories, and we call those stories parables. And so for the fall, all the way through to Advent in November, we're going to be looking at the parables of Jesus, which in many ways are the parables of the kingdom. They're stories about how this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven we've been talking about, how it works and how you can enter it and what it will be like to live in it, and all those sorts of things. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, you can, to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 24 through 30, and then skipping to the... That's, that's the parable itself, and then in, in verses 36 through 43, Jesus gives the explanation of the parable to his disciples. So we'll be reading both of those passages. If you don't want to... to if you, you know, if you'd rather follow along, it'll be on the screen behind me. It's also printed for you in your worship folder, so we can all be on the same page together. So let's read together this morning. From Matthew's Gospel, uh, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 13. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds, weeds, I'm I'm just going to, that's going to mess me up today, weeds and wheat. I just want you to know, okay? We're going to try to keep those things straight. Man. He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears. Let him hear. This is God's word. Now, 
in this parable, as Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like and what to expect and how you can enter into it, this parable in particular specifically teaches that there are in the world two kingdoms, good and evil, that exist side by side. Two orders of reality, you might say. Again, side by side, vying for supremacy and vying with each other. However, Christians are not dualists in the sense that we, although we believe there is good and evil in the world, we do not believe that those two forces are equal. We believe that the evil that exists was created, that God created it good and it turned bad, and it's now living in rebellion against the Creator. And yet Jesus says very clearly that the way we experience the world as we think about the kingdom of God coming into the world is that there are two kingdoms, and we will see evidence of both of them. And So he wants us to see how it is that the kingdom of God is advancing in the context of there being spiritual conflict in which we live out our lives as people who live as citizens of one kingdom even while we still uh, maintain citizenship in another. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Three things. Uh, First, we want to see that the kingdom has come. Secondly, that the kingdom is coming. So, And that's going to sound weird, doesn't it, a little bit? That the kingdom has come, but that the kingdom is coming. It's both. It's both of those things. It's here. It's now. It's present. You can enter into it now. But it's still future. It's coming. There's something that we're waiting for. And then, if that's true, then the bulk of our time together this morning, then, is how do we live faithfully in between the beginning and the end? How do we live faithfully in between the times? That's what we want to look at this morning. So, uh, let's just begin with this idea of sowing. You'll see there in your outline. You see, Jesus is being touted as the Messiah. This is what's happening around him as he's telling these stories. He is being proclaimed to be the long-awaited king that they've been longing for and hoping for that would rescue God's people from his enemies. He's been doing all these miracles, right? He's been preaching sermons, saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is near and the crowds watching and listening would have understood very clearly what he was claiming. There would have been a lot of excitement swirling around him. The people would have had specific expectations. They would have expected an immediate political military overthrow. That's what they thought Messiah was going to do. And so here he is and he's come and and now things are going to happen really quickly. And Jesus tells this parable to correct and to contradict even their misunderstandings that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that he is bringing is a far more radical and more comprehensive thing than they could possibly imagine. And that would not come immediately, but gradually. And with opposition. And so the first question we have to answer is then what is this kingdom of heaven? What, I mean, what is this kingdom Jesus is talking about? And you see Jesus is trying to get people in his day, and I would say in ours, to see that the kingdom of heaven was not just coming to overthrow Rome. It was not just a political military movement. He wants them to stop thinking so one-dimensionally as politics. And to see that our problems go much deeper in the political and social and emotional and psychological uh, parts of our lives, I want to say it this way to you, that the reason life is full of pain and misery is that reality itself is broken. Uh, One pastor who was preaching on this particular passage said it this way, he said, at the very roots of reality there is an evil, at the very roots of the psyche and the roots of our society In reality itself, at the roots of the natural and even the supernatural fabric of the universe, there's an evil, a cancer, that is eating out the guts of the way things are, and so everything's broken. You see, that's what's really wrong. 
And so the promise of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom is that Jesus is bringing to earth an invasion of the revolution of God, the power of God, that will go to the very heart of the evils and the condition of the world. So the same pastor goes on and he says, imagine, imagine how would you like a world, not just in which you can set up a business and not be taxed to the limit, but how would you like a world, imagine a world without sorrow, hatred, or grief. Imagine a world without poverty, sickness, or injustice. Imagine a world without racial strife or loneliness. Imagine a world without guilt or unhappiness or mental illness or family breakdown. Imagine a world in which all of the brokenness, emotional and social and spiritual and political and even physical, has been completely eliminated because all of the opposition to God's love and justice, whether in the human heart or whether in your own body or whether in all the human institutions, has been annihilated and put down. So everything God wants for you is affected. Imagine a world like that. And Jesus says, that's what I'm here to bring. And we see this, this is the revolution that has started. This is what he has sowed into the world. It's not the institutions that are broken. It's not the political system that's broken. Reality itself is broken. And Jesus has begun to take every inch of reality, the emotional, the social, the spiritual, the political, the physical, the economic, and bring it underneath the light and the power of his royal will so that it's transformed. That's what he's doing in the world. That's what he's doing in Winter Haven. The power of God is at work. The Spirit of God is in the world now. Jesus has planted this revolution in the world, and the promise Jesus makes is that this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom, that we can enter into it, that the kingdom life can come into us and begin to remake us, that that means that this new dimension of reality that's breaking into human history, into the world, it can become our reality. We can enter into it. And as we do, we will, it will begin to reconstruct every single part of us, the way we think, the way we live, our values, and the way we look at life. And that's what it means to be a Christian. You see, Jesus is the sower in the parable. He's the sower, and he's sown the seeds of the kingdom of heaven into the world, and they're bearing fruit. The kingdom is advancing, Jesus is teaching us, and we can enter into it. It's coming. It has come. It has come. But immediately, immediately you can see the problem. Though though the kingdom of heaven has come in Jesus, Jesus, though it has entered into human history and is advancing, there is much that is still wrong in the world, isn't there? Evil is afoot and it is advancing too. The new age of the kingdom has come, true, but the old age of sin and despair has not yet ended. And the parable teaches this when it says that an enemy came, verse 25, if you see there, and sowed wheat among the weeds. And this went unnoticed for some time, we're told, because uh, Jesus is using a specific type of weed that would have looked very much like the, the shoots you know, of, of wheat here. Until the wheat came up and the grain began to sprout, and then you, could, you know, then you could tell the difference, and you can imagine looking out at a field that's full of wheat and also weeds, and Jesus is saying that as we look out into the world, that's what it should look like to us. We should be able to see signs of the gospel's advance in the world, but also we should see weeds. The gospel's going to the nations, but there's weeds. The curse has not yet been lifted. Evil still has sway. And so I think we learn a couple of lessons from this. And the first is that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we plan, <clears throat> I hate to break it to you, uh, there will always be weeds. You know, 
we're very naive of evil in our culture especially. We just don't really believe in the reality of evil. We're convinced that whatever hardship, you know, or, or frustrations we might come up against, it can be fixed with the right social program or the right education or with enough parenting. You know? But Jesus doesn't let us get away with this kind of thinking. He says evil is far more pervasive and far-reaching than we are often willing to admit. And so secondly, I think, the parable then, if that's true, then the parable leaves us looking and waiting for a final solution. And you see in verse 39 that Jesus points us to what he calls the harvest, the close of the age, he says, when the weeds are gathered and burned and the wheat is brought in. And in Joel 2 which was our call to worship, as well as other places in the prophets especially, this metaphor of the harvest is used to describe what Joel refers to as the day of the Lord, or the great day of God's vengeance. It was the day when God would come and right all wrongs, when evildoers would be punished, and evil would be put down, and those who belong to God would be rewarded. It's the great, you know, what we've, what we've often talked about, this great day of judgment. Jesus uses this prophetic imagery to describe a day that is coming, When this would happen, if you look there, when the angels, verse 41, would gather all causes of sin and all those who are lawbreakers and bring them to judgment. And that that phrase, causes of sin, is a Greek word we've seen before. It's a Greek word, scandalon. And it refers to, if you could just use your imaginations with me for one minute, all of the social institutions and governments that keep people from coming to Christ. You know, the Hollywoods and Bollywoods of the world. The advertisement companies that encourage materialism, the higher educational institutions that attack Christianity and promote atheism and godlessness, the brutal dictatorships that breed oppression and violence, and the corrupt corporations that are consumed with greed, all of these, these causes of sin will be judged. But he says also, also the lawbreakers. And it's just a little word that means... Those who live as if there's no law. Those who have ignored God's commands. Those, those who have made themselves the deciders of right and wrong. All those who live as if they're under no authority, but as if they're authority unto themselves. As if there's no other authority other than their own opinions. This is the description of those who, who reject God and His rule and make themselves out to be gods in His place. And what Jesus is saying, what the Bible says is, our real problem is just this, that this, this right here is what is really wrong with the world. It's our unwillingness to be ruled, that we want to rule for ourselves, and that that's the, that is the root of all of the evil in the world. And so it has to be judged. It has to be put down. All of human pride and selfishness have to be put down, and it's good news that God's going to do that. But Jesus is unmistakably saying here that this judgment will be a great day of wrath, that God will come in wrath and cast sin and sinners into what he calls, in verse 42, the fiery furnace. And then he goes on to describe it as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And of course, historically the church has seen this as the imagery of hell. And the language is meant to convey just that, sheer horror. Imagine, Jesus says, being consumed by fire, but eternally, forever and ever. Imagine being consumed by utter despair. He says a place of weeping, of wailing, you know, and torture, gnashing of teeth. As if, if you've ever, have you ever had a sharp pain come into your body and what's the first thing you do? Right? You clench. I mean, kids, you're in here this morning. If you can imagine, you know, I, don't, I was trying to think of how to say this, but, you know, the worst day of your life multiplied by a million forever and ever and ever. 
You see, that's the historical view Christians have held of what awaits those who are judged guilty of rebellion and sin. And to be a good friend to you, I have to warn you of the foolishness of continuing in rebellion against the king. Because the king, the king has come, but he is coming again. And right now the terms are peace, if you'll turn to him. But on that day, it will be terms of war. And if you're not a Christian, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, you're headed not only for judgment, but for wrath. But then keep going here in these verses and see that those who through faith have entered into the kingdom of God, those who have trusted in Christ, if you look down at the very end of the passage, the last verse there, verse 43, Jesus calls them the righteous. And he does that because at the very heart of the revolution of God is the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The weeds that grow, you know, the physical weeds in my front yard, as well as the spiritual weeds that grow in our heart and in, you know, human community are part of the curse that has been placed upon the world because of sin. And what Jesus is saying is that on the day of judgment, those weeds will be gathered together and burned. And there's only one way. There's only one way to escape the fire of that judgment. There's only one way in the economy and plan of God to do that, and that is that Jesus became for us the weeds that are cast out and burned. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. In other words, Jesus took the curse upon himself. He was counted guilty in our place. He became the weeds. And on the cross, the fire of God's wrath fell on him and consumed him. And that means... That means if in repentance and faith you come to Jesus and submit yourself to him and enter into his kingdom and begin to live as a follower of him, then on the day of judgment there's no wrath left for you. There's no fire. There's no weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has experienced all of those things in your place. He bore your curse so that you could be named among the righteous. See, that's the gospel. And that word righteous there in verse 44, is it 44? In verse 43, that word righteous means to be put right. It means to be rightly ordered or to be rightly related to. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's what happens when you enter the kingdom of heaven and begin to experience his power. Jesus says that on the day of judgment, these righteous, look there, this is just amazing. He says that they will shine like the sun. What a wonderful promise that on that day that we'll be radiant, we'll be glorious, we'll be so brilliantly beautiful that the look at us would be like trying to look at the sun. It would just blind you. Finally. I mean, finally, all of the sin, all of the dross, all of the shame will be gone and we'll be whole and we'll be stunning. I mean, C.S. Lewis said this way. C.S. Lewis says, you've never met a mere mortal. There's no such thing as a mere mortal. That all of us are becoming either a creature that will be so blindingly beautiful or so absolutely horrendous that you would fall down, either you would fall down and worship it or you would run away in fear. And we will be revealed finally on that day to be what we really are. We will be so blindingly beautiful that it will be like that we will shine like the sun. See, that's our future. But... We live in between the times. We live between the times of the coming of the kingdom and the future consummation of the kingdom. Between the time of sowing and the time of harvest, when the plants and the weeds grow up together. And so I think this parable really is about how we live in that time faithfully and consistently. And so we need to see what we learn from this parable as we come just to the end of the third point here. 
that I've entitled Realistic Engagement. What do we learn about how we do that faithfully, about how we live in between the past and, you know, the beginnings and, and the consummation of the kingdom? You see, in, our, in the present, evil remains. And Jesus says that as long as the world goes on, the wheat and the weeds will grow up together until the harvest. Jesus is warning us that there is a counter-revolution to the revolution of God that he came to initiate. There's an enemy that is also sown seed, verse 39. And his counter-revolution is bearing fruit too. And here's the amazing thing. Did you notice in the parable that God has ordained that it continue that way? I mean, did you notice that? The workers come and say, should we pull up the weeds? And he says, no, let them remain. You see, the sons of the evil one and the sons of the kingdom will live together side by side. We can't get away from evil no matter how hard we try. We can't do away with it. And so we're going to have to learn to live with it and engage it and endure it. So how do you do that? You see, the parable really is about how we faithfully engage culture. The field, we're told, is the world. Not the heart, not the church. It's the world. And and the good seed represents those that are the sons of the kingdom, Jesus says. Those who belong to Jesus. And the bad seed represents the rest of the world which does not believe in Jesus. So the application that this parable really is getting at is how do Christians live in the world right alongside of those who don't believe? And I want us to finish by looking at two wrong responses and then one right response. Now a warning, a warning to you. Part of what Jesus is undeniably trying to teach us in this story is that it is often very hard to distinguish between what is weeds and what is wheat. Do you see that? Uh, the dommel, this, this plant that he uses, would have looked exactly like the wheat plant, which is why they didn't know this happened until the, the, it began to sprout, and then they could tell the difference. So each of these wrong responses has specific tendencies in blind spots, and so we need to just be aware of that, okay? So two wrong responses, talking about their blind spots, and then the one right response. So let's do this. First, here's the first wrong response. If you forget that the kingdom has come, remember, it's here. It's present. And if you forget that it has come, then you'll tend to be overly pessimistic about the kingdom's advance. Jesus is warning us of this. He's Warning us of being pessimistic or cynical, of losing hope or living in fear or overestimating, over, or excuse me, overestimating the power of the influence of evil. Jesus is saying, you can dream too small. Don't forget that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, that it's already here, that you can enter into it now, that eternal life is available to you now and you can live in it and experience it. The seed has been sowed. And it is growing up and beginning to sprout heads of grain. The kingdom is here and bearing fruit. It's advancing. There's a place in the Gospels I love where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to minister and to preach the kingdom. And they come back to him and they say, Lord, it's the most amazing thing. Even the demons obey us and submit to us in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, you see what Jesus is saying? In other words, as the church goes out in, in ministry and, and brings the gospel to the nations, Jesus is saying, Satan's time is up. Remember, we saw in, Math, in, in Matthew chapter, 12, chapter 10 that Jesus is the one, he's the one who's come to bind the strong man. He's come to do away with the works of the evil one. So we can't, we can't be overly pessimistic, right? The gospel, Paul says in Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes. Jesus, I'm here to tell you, can change any heart, any marriage, any family, any city, any society, no matter how hard, hard, hard-hearted the person might be or how much corruption there might be. He can't. But there's a tendency sometimes to be pessimistic. And the blind spot in this pessimism is, you know, if you tend to be more cynical, 
if you tend to be on the more pessimistic side, then a lot of times you'll often look at a situation or a person or a relationship and you'll just see weeds. You'll not also see the wheat. This is the glass is half uh, empty kind of person, right? You'll just see the negative and not all the ways God's working, so you'll really struggle to be hopeful and to believe that Jesus can change the situation or that person. You'll be tempted to treat sin, whether in, your, in the society or in your spouse or in your children, as more defining than Jesus' power, and that's unbelief. It's a lack of confidence in Jesus' ability uh, to save you. It's making much more of evil and making little of Jesus. And the more I thought about it this week, the more I really think this is why the Master told the servants in verse 29 not to pull up the weeds. I, I, really, that just, I could not really wrap my head around what he was saying there, but I really think it's this. I think, he's, I think the lesson is that God is working in ways we haven't even thought of yet. That he's working in the lives of people who from all outward appearance seem to be the least likely candidates for his mercy. And we have no idea all the circumstances and all the little ways and the hidden ways he's at work. And so we shouldn't be overly pessimistic. Now as far as a cultural engagement strategy, those, and again, these are characterizations and they're not meant, I'm not putting anybody in categories, I'm just hoping you see how this works. Typically as a cultural engagement strategy, those who are more on the pessimistic or the cynical side will tend to uh, adopt a strategy of withdrawal. Uh, in other words, to retreat and to wait out, you know, wait it out until Jesus comes again, to cloister ourselves in little Christian ghettos and to never venture out into the world and to refuse to engage in the lar- larger society and try to do, try to change things. And this strategy is usually rooted in fear or cynicism and the problem is it doesn't work. Now, I just, this is just one example of this, okay? One example. And so, you might decide to put your kids in private school so that they can escape the corruptive influence of drugs and sex in the public school system. But the problem is, is that weeds grow there too. And so now all you've done is expose them to a completely different kind of evil. They may not smoke or drink, but they have to face the corruptive influence of arrogance and elitism and materialism. Oh, and so, okay, then so you decide, let's bring them home and we'll homeschool them. But I hate to tell you, weeds grow there too. Right? Right? And so now you have to parent them through self-absorption and a sense of entitlement. I mean, those are all generalizations. You know, I'm, I'm, nobody get offended by that, okay? I'm not, I, I'm just, all I want you to see is the point is that the strategy of withdrawal is not wise because, number one, it's impossible. If you're trying to get away from evil, there's no way to, where to go because guess what? It's not something that's out there. It's... You know... Jesus also says it's not faithful. And he says in the wisdom of God, the way it works is the wheat and the weeds grow up together side by side. So overly pessimistic, right? Uh, second wrong response, and that is that if you, see, if you forget the kingdom has come, you might tend to become overly pessimistic. But if you forget the kingdom is coming, it's still coming, it's still on the way, then you might wrongly become overly optimistic about its, its advance and underestimate the power of evil. You might become naive. I mean, you can dream too big. I mean, you can set your expectations too high and easily get discouraged when things don't change as quickly as you think they should or when despite all of your stellar parenting, your kids still sin. Right? Or a friend lets you down. Or a tragedy befalls someone you love and it just eats away at you. So don't forget that the kingdom is here. It's now, but it's also coming. And until Jesus comes to do away with evil, the weeds remain. Pull them out today and they'll be back tomorrow. 
Now, blind spot for these people, if you're more, if you're more on the optimistic side, then you'll do the opposite of the first person. You'll tend to look at a situation or a relationship or a person and you'll see wheat, but not weeds. Especially when it comes to your position or to your group of friends or to your little, you know, thing you've got going on. So Jesus is saying, don't be naive. And that's unbelief too, because really at its root, it's an, it's an overconfidence in your ability to produce change. And it really gets, it manifests itself in things like moralism or radical patriotism or some kind of cultural imperialism. Those are the kinds of things I have in mind. And so the cultural engagement strategy on this side of things is what I call, and this is a bit, it's, let me explain this, but it's what I call enculturation. And it just means this, to become so immersed in the surrounding culture, to be so shaped by the culture that you're no different than the culture. That your goals, your goals might be different. I mean, you might want things to change, but your methods and your strategies to achieving those goals won't be any different. It's kind of a hard concept to, under, to understand, so let me give you an example or two about what I mean. I mean, let me, and this is, gosh, I'm, this, is, um, this is dangerous, so let me just comment on this whole taking America back for God thing, which I'm in favor of, by the way. Can I just, right? Anybody with me? Amen? I mean, we, thank you. I'm, I, I'm all for that, but, but there's a huge assumption in the rhetoric, and that is that, that, that you know, it seems at the root that this movement really believes that change comes through, you know, political processes. And I just want to say, that feels like playing by the world's rules. And what I mean by that is this, is that I think part of what Jesus is teaching us in this parable is that the way we change our country and our city is not to gain power through the political process and go and begin to rip out the weeds of liberalism or secularism in our society. No, Jesus says, let them stay there. Don't worry about that stuff. Let it stay there. So I think the way the church brings change is not through cultural processes, by standing outside of the culture and pointing to a different way, by being its own culture. A counterculture, a colony of the kingdom of heaven, by protesting abortion clinics, but also setting up adoption agencies and finding a home for every unwanted baby. Right? I'm not saying at all, I'm not at all saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics. The church, by definition, is its own politics. We should be passionately involved in the political process, but not put our hope in it. Don't, buy, don't play by the world's rules. That's enculturation. As people of faith, oh, I, you know, hear my heart when I say this, but our hope is not in a Republican majority in Congress. It's not in ousting the current administration it, our hope is that Jesus would come and set up His administration. You, I mean, you, there's a difference between those two things, though. And our hope is that, you know, our hope is that things won't always be the way they are. They are right now. That wrongs will be made right. That justice is coming. But can I just say, it's not coming because you're going to bring it. He's going to bring it. Evil will finally and totally be and forever be vanquished, but only when he comes again to do it himself. So, overly pessimistic, overly optimistic. So what's the right response? And I think the right response is just this. It's what I call here in this third, third point, realistic engagement. So I think, ultimately, the balance is just this. The kingdom is here, it's advancing, and it should make us willing and eager to intelligently and enthusiastically engage our culture, to get our hands dirty, to make a difference. 
to, to, to be active in the political process, to write your congressman and your, and your senator and tell them about what you desire to see happen, to, to involve yourself in all of the ways, you know, all of the little details of culture and try to make the city we live in a better city, to make a difference, that when you come face-to-face with sin, don't get discouraged, but be hopeful, be courageous, because the kingdom is advancing. It's here, but it's also not yet. And so... Even as we engage passionately, we should also be realistic. To not think that it's our work that's going to bring the kingdom. To expect and bear patiently with setbacks and defeats and discouragements. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. So I want to just offer three application points. Just as bullet points for us this morning. Application number one. And this is true, especially as we come to the Lord's table now. It's just a call to self-examination. When Jesus adds at the end here... He who has ears, let him hear. He's inviting us to think deeply and imaginatively about what he is saying. He wants us to ask questions like this. Which kingdom do you belong to? What will be your fate on the day of judgment? Will you, like the weeds in Jesus' story, be gathered up and thrown into the fire? Or will you shine like the sun, beautiful and brilliant, because you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus? Application number two. Don't be surprised by wheat. Right? Don't be surprised when you see wheat growing. Look for and expect the kingdom's advance to bear fruit in your life and in the lives of those around you. And on Capitol Hill, pray that God would put the people that he wants in office in office and that he would work through those people to bring change that would be for the good of this country and for the cause of Christ. Don't, don't be surprised by wheat. And work for it. But thirdly, third application, don't be surprised by weeds either. See, don't let setbacks shake your faith. Don't let your sin and the sin of others cause you to question Jesus' power and faithfulness. It is his will that the weeds remain. In fact, I want to say this to you. They are his gift. They are his gift to you to keep you from trusting in yourself, to keep you praying and waiting and looking to him. The weeds in your own heart, your struggles and your sins are the very things that take you back to him over and over again. And without them, you'd get full of self-confidence and pride. And I just want to say to you as your friend, God will not remove the weeds from your life because they're the reason you pray. They're the fuel for your faith. Don't you see? Don't you see? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's now. That's the gospel. And yet at the very end of our scriptures, in the last verses of the book of Revelation... Jesus declared, surely I'm coming soon. And John, his friend's response very simply was just this, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful. Uh, We're we're so thankful for all of the ways that you uh, prove yourself uh, faithful to do the work you promised to do. We're thankful uh, for the men and women that, that go to Tallahassee and wrestle through the implications of laws for our state and for the men and women who lead our city and all of the uh, decisions they make to make Winter Haven a better place to live. But Jesus, we, we do not want to mistakenly put our hope in them. Uh, and so I pray you, you, would, you would rightly call us to hope, not in uh, an administration of our preference, but in your administration, that you would, you would uh, set up your kingdom. And Jesus, we just we as we think about all the brokenness and the sin in the world that we still have to engage, we just we pray as as John did, come 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and, and make all that is wrong right. Come and, and establish your royal will and bring everything into dominion underneath you. Come and subdue our hearts because we are lawbreakers. And as we celebrate this meal together this morning, remind us of this tension that we live in and help us look to the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed that we might know freedom and that on that day of judgment we might not face wrath, but we might shine like the sun. So come and help us celebrate this well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, amen. Uh, a couple of logist- logistical things as we, uh, I hope, if you don't know this, uh, today's our second anniversary and uh, we're going to celebrate by having lunch together in the fellowship hall. If you didn't bring food, it's okay. I know somebody left just a few minutes ago to get 300 pieces of chicken. So there's only about 180 of us or 190 of us in the room. So if we eat 300 pieces of chicken, we're going to have to repent later for gluttony. So please come, Okay. Come and enjoy this. Enjoy lunch with us, even though, even if you didn't get the opportunity to bring something to share. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go right out this door or that door back there. There are doors right to my right, your left. We're going to go through those doors. The table set up in the hallway. Get your food and come in to the to Covenant Hall and sit down. If you have kids, here's what we're going to ask you to do: uh, go. You're going to have to walk through the grass a little bit. But if you would pick the kids up on the outer side of the um, the building where the playground is at those doors there leading to the playground, please do that. If you have a child in the purple class or the red class or the orange class, if you could, I know I'm asking a lot, go all the way around the building and enter from the far doors and pick them up. That would be great, okay, so that we can kind of let the traffic flow through there. So that's, everybody understand those instructions? I don't, so hopefully you do. We'll figure it out. Now, uh, to, to, uh, to close the service... What a beautiful call to go. I love, I love, I, I laugh, but I love John. If you want to go anywhere, come talk to me. Uh, we are called to go. We are called to make a difference. We're called to engage. And we, we want to be a church. Uh, we've said from the very beginning, we don't want just a great church. We want to live in a great city. That's why we're here. We want to change Winter Haven. We want to be a part of making Winter Haven a great place to live. And we want to see the kingdom of God come to our city. And so we're going to have to engage. We're going to have to go. But as we go, don't forget, don't, don't misplace your hope. Don't forget that ultimately it's Jesus' work that's going to get the work done. And so we look to him in faith. And that's the promise of this benediction, that as you go, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, then the power and the blessing and the authority and uh, all of the resources of God rest upon you as he sends you into the world uh, to do just that. So receive the benediction this morning. Uh, and then... Um, uh, then we're going to go eat lunch. This benediction will will act. We'll just say this is the blessing for lunch as well. Okay, and you can just you can just go and eat, eat and get your food. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you His peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in His peace and have come join us, please.